in both English and Spanish. So if you uh, need to borrow a Bible for the morning or if you need a Bible, uh, period, just take it along with you. That's what they're there for. So Acts chapter 1 and verse 8 is where we were at this morning. By the way, happy Valentine's Day to all of you, to all of you. Let's bow together in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we do bow before you with uh, thanksgiving for your love for us and uh, teach us to love each other, Lord. Thank you that we have the privilege, the opportunity to study your word. To learn your desires, to learn your mind, to learn your will. Thank you that your word is powerful and effective. That it can reach down to the innermost parts of us. Change us. Make us into the image of your son. Thank you that your word is the content of our instruction, that your word can correct our paths if we are on the wrong track, that your word can correct our wrong doctrine, and that your word can train us in righteousness so we can serve you in the manner that you desire for us to do. Lord, we give you praise that we can be together on this day. We pray for those who are in places where perhaps the roads are slick, in dangerous situations. We pray for them, Father. We pray for wisdom for those who will be out in this weather. We pray for those first responders who must be out. Thank you for a warm building. Thank you for warm homes. Thank you for providing everything we need, our food, our clothing, our shelter. Lord, again, we thank you that we can study your word. We thank you for the salvation your son purchased for us on Calvary's cross without cost to us, but so costly to you. There's even one here this morning in this service or the second service who has never put their trust in Jesus, your son. I pray that your spirit would draw them this day and they would trust him and him alone for salvation. Now, Lord, guide us as we study your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. What now? What now, have you ever said those words? Perhaps a friend that you relied upon moved away and you say to yourself, what now? Who am I going to go to? Who am I going to confide in? By the way, that's a common occurrence at Del Rio Bible Church. In 23 years at Del Rio Bible Church, we have said goodbye to more people than I can count as they've been sent on to other places, other places by the Air Force or Border Patrol or by some organization sending them on somewhere else. Some of them were integral to our ministry. While they were here, they were vital to what we have been doing. And so I have had occasion and our elders have had occasion to say, what now? Who's going to take their place? 
But what now? Perhaps you've moved to a new place. And you say, what now? Or you're in a new situation, a new position, a new job, and you say, what now? I imagine Acts chapter 1, the disciples are kind of asking themselves that same thing. What now? Jesus has gone to Calvary's cross. He's died, been buried in the grave three days. Resurrected from the dead. He's been with the disciples for about 40 days by the time we get to Acts chapter 1. He's been encouraging them, instructing them, getting them ready for what's next. But still, they don't totally understand. As we saw in our passage last week, they're still asking Him about the kingdom because in their minds, that's the next thing on God's agenda is the millennial kingdom. And Jesus said, no, that's not what I want you to be thinking about. That's not what I want you to be thinking about. And he tells them what their main duty is to be. He tells them what the main job of those of us who call ourselves believers in Jesus Christ, of those of us who are in the church, what is the main duty that you and I have? And you know that that is to witness from our study last week. And then shortly after explaining that to the disciples, what happens? Jesus is taken up into the air and taken away in what we call the ascension. And I can imagine the disciples looking at each other once again and saying, what now? What now? Well, what did they do? They listened to what He told them. He told them to wait for the power of the Holy Spirit, the empowerment, the enablement of the Holy Spirit to make them witnesses to Him. They had that instruction. They knew they were to wait. They knew that when the time came, they were to witness. They had the Word of God. And we're going to see in this morning's passage that they had fellowship with each other and they had prayer. So the answer to what now is to listen to the Word of God. The answer to what now is to be with the people of God. The answer to what now is to pray and make our needs known to God. That's what these disciples would do. That's what we'll see in this section of Scripture this morning. As we discussed last week, we are to be witnesses. That's what Jesus told the disciples. In verse 7, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father is set by His own authority. That is, don't worry about when the kingdom, the millennial kingdom will be set up. But rather, verse 8, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be My witnesses. That's our primary responsibility. That's our primary duty. That's our one mission as individuals in the church is to be witnesses to Jesus Christ. One 
writer put it this way, we are a people who believe in Jesus whose first priority must be to give clear witness to Him. It's our priority. It's our commission. It's our one mission. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You will be my witnesses. Now, interestingly, in Greek, that could either be a declarative sentence or it could be a command. Is Jesus simply observing that they would be witnesses to his life and ministry and death and resurrection and ascension? Is he just simply stating that fact? Or is He commanding them to be witnesses and through them commanding you and me to be witnesses? Well, in chapter 1 and verse 8, it could be either. It could be a command or declarative statement. But I want you to turn with me to Acts chapter 10 and verse 42 where I think we'll find the answer. Acts chapter 10 and verse 42 This is the section where Peter is witnessing to Cornelius. And in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42, what does Peter say to Cornelius about Jesus? He, what? Commanded us to preach to the people and to testify that He is the one whom God appointed as judge of the living and the dead. All the prophets testify about Him, that everyone who believes in Him receives forgiveness of sins through His name. That settles it right there, right? (laughs) It may be ambiguous in chapter 1 and verse 8 whether it's just simply a statement of fact or whether it's a command, but Peter makes it clear in Acts chapter 10 and verse 42. It is a command to Him. It is a command to the apostles. It is a command to the early disciples. It is a command to the early church. It is a command to you and to me to be witnesses. To be witnesses. Well, I told you last week that witness is a key word in the book of Acts. It's found in its verb form and its noun form some 29 times in the book of Acts. There are numerous examples. I just finished in my my reading through the Bible in a year, I just finished reading the book of Acts, and it's amazing to me how many times and how many examples of what Jesus meant by witnessing is seen in the book of Acts. In case you're saying to yourself, well, what does it mean to to witness? Read the book of Acts. Read chapter 10, section we just quoted. Read chapter 13. Read all through the book of Acts. There's all kinds of examples. There's all kinds of illustrations for you and for me as to what it means to be His witness. We are commanded to witness. We are commanded not just to witness corporately as a church, but as we looked at last week, we are commanded to be personal witnesses, to be personal witnesses to what God is doing. Now, it's a, it's a good thing for us to ask the question is, what was the evangelism of the early church like? I just told you, read through the book of Acts and you can see the way they evangelized. You can see the way they witnessed. 
but in the Navigators 2-7 series, in a book entitled Essentials for Discipleship, in a book entitled Spiritual Fitness, How to Get It and Keep It, the evangelism of the early church is described. The evangelism of the Christian men and women in the early church was characterized by three things. And I think these are important for us to understand. The evangelism of the early church, of the men and women of the early church, was characterized by three things. Number one, they openly identified with Jesus Christ. They were not ashamed. They openly identified with Jesus Christ. They were not ashamed. Secondly, they demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. Their lives attracted other people to the Savior. The way they lived was an attraction to other people to the Savior. They exhibited in their lives the fruit of the Spirit. Jesus had told the early church, wait until the Holy Spirit comes. He will empower you. He will enable you. But they had to do something. They had to respond to the Holy Spirit. By the way, what is the fruit of the Spirit? Love. Don't be afraid. Love. Peace. Joy. What else? Patience, what else? Self-control, what else? Kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, okay? All you have to do is look at Galatians chapter 5. You'll see, I think it's verses 19 and 20. You'll see the fruit of the Spirit. They demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit. Their lives attracted other people to the Savior. Thirdly, the third thing that the evangelism of the Christian men and women in the early church were characterized by is they were actively seeking to influence other people toward Jesus Christ. They were actively seeking to influence other people toward Jesus Christ. So they openly identified with Jesus. They were not ashamed. They demonstrated the fruit of the Spirit which attracted other people to the Savior and they were actively seeking to influence other people toward Jesus Christ. I guess the question for us is, are we even close to doing it that way? Are we ashamed of Jesus Christ? Is our witness... Does it come out of a demonstration of the fruit of the Spirit? Does it come from a place of love and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness? Are we actively seeking to influence other people to Jesus Christ? That was the example of the early church. The early men and women of the early church. The second thing that these books point out is that evangelism in the Bible is a process. Is a process. Too often you and I think of evangelism as an event. Uh, almost like a sales deal. Uh, we, we think that we have to close the deal whenever we uh, speak to someone for Jesus Christ. But evangelism is a process we have to recognize that. We have to recognize 
that it is not just an event, it is not just a salesman closing a deal. When I was, before I became a believer in Jesus Christ and before, after becoming a believer, God called me to the ministry, I worked in a a career that I really loved. Uh, We manufactured and sold kitchen cabinets. Now, I don't, you're saying to yourself, how could you love that? But that was in the days before uh, Home Depot and Lowe's and all the other places that you go. They actually had kitchen showrooms, and you'd go to a kitchen showroom, and the person would uh, draw up a plan for your kitchen. I love that part of it. I love the drafting part of it. Uh, we manufactured the cabinets. And I had a wonderful boss. Uh, my boss and his wife argued me into the kingdom of God. I've shared that with you many times. Literally argued me. Every day with them was a, was a, a going back and forth about the Savior. <laughs> that I don't need what you're talking about. They're telling me I need to put my trust in Jesus Christ. <clears throat> And him alone, not religion, not church, put my trust in Jesus. And I'm saying, oh, listen, I belong to the one true church. I'm okay. I don't need what you're selling. Well, my boss was a very clever person. He was a great, great salesman. A great, great salesman. And he told me the four P's of sales. Do you know what the four P's of sales are? Person, plan, product, price. All these years later, I can remember that. Person, plan, product, price. You sell yourself, you sell the plan that you've developed, that you drafted for their kitchen, you sell the product you have and how good it is, and then the price takes care of itself. That's the way he did it. Well, you know, sometimes we present Jesus like that, person, plan, product, price. Like it's a sales situation. But as these writers have identified, evangelism is a process It's not an event. Uh, 1 Corinthians, if you would turn to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, Paul makes that very point. 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 5 to 9. What after all is Apollos, and what is Paul? Only servants through whom you come, you came to believe as the Lord has assigned to each his task. I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but God made it grow. So neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who makes things grow. The man who plants and the man who waters have one purpose and each will be rewarded according to his own labor. For we are God's fellow workers, you are God's field, God's building." Paul said, I planted the seed, Apollos watered it, but it's God who made it grow. You see, evangelism is a process. And I think sometimes we have difficulty with evangelism. We have difficulty with witnessing. We have difficulty with fulfilling God's command to us because we think it's all on us. We think we have to close the deal. Person, plan, product, price. When we forget, we're just one part of the whole process. We may be the one who plants the seed, 
plants the Word of God in somebody's life. We may be one of the many people who water the Word of God in someone's life. But ultimately, it's not on us to see people saved. It is God who sees people saved. We do our job. We plant the seed. We water the seed. And God gives the increase. You know, we might be there at the end of the process. That would be, that's the place every one of us wants to be, right? We want to be at the end of the process. We want to be the, the one. I led someone to the Lord today. That's an awesome thing. That's an awesome thing to be able to say. But isn't it just as awesome to be able to say, I watered the seed in someone's life. I watered the seed in someone's life. Or I planted the seed. I planted, I was the one that planted the seed of the Word of God in their lives. And I'm trusting that God will bring along those who need to water it. And that He will give the increase. I think that's, a great point. Lifestyle Evangelism Seminar defines evangelism this way, taking the initiative to help a person move one step closer in the process. Taking the initiative to help a person move one step closer in the process. I think that takes a lot of weight off us, doesn't it? A lot of pressure off us. What we're doing is moving a person one step closer to Jesus Christ. We may be at the end of the process. That would be awesome. We may be the ones who finally lead them to the Lord. But there was a long process before that of other people doing their job as well. Well, that's kind of how we might be a witness and how we might share our faith. Back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you'll receive power, and this is verse 8, when the Holy Spirit comes on you, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. This gives us the Several things. It gives us, number one, the outline of the book. We've looked at that before. This is an outline of the book of Acts. As we see the gospel beginning in Jerusalem, moving to Judea, the next geographical section, moving outside Judea, outside Judaism to Samaria, and then moving beyond Samaria to the ends of the earth, Literally in Greek, that is the end of the earth. And probably is speaking of Rome, looking to Rome. Rome was 1,400 miles from Jerusalem. And surely in that day, it was the center of culture. It was the center of the world. So we have here, Jesus gives them an outline of what they are to be doing and interestingly, it becomes the outline of the book of Acts. But there are several things that this shows us. It shows us that the message is not restricted to just one people. It is open to all people. It is not just restricted to one place. It is meant to go out to everywhere. Sort of think of it like a 
concentric circles. You have Jerusalem in the center, Judea is the next section out, Samaria the next section out, and then to the end or ends of the earth. If we were to apply that to our situation, we would begin where? Del Rio, Texas, right? Del Rio, Texas. And then you move out from Del Rio, Texas to possibly the state, state of Texas. Then from the state of Texas, you move out to the United States. And from the United States, you move out to the world. That's the idea. The message starts at home and moves further out and further out and further out. Instead of geographical, we can look at it personally. The message begins with us as we share with our families. By the way, that will be the hardest one you will share. Sharing with our families is often the hardest people to share with. By the way, that's where living out the fruit of the Spirit really helps. That's where it really helps with our families. We begin with our families, and then we move out to our neighbors. Then we move out to our co-workers, and the concentric circles keep growing and growing and growing. That's the way the gospel goes forth. That's the way Jesus said we are to witness. We will be his witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea and Samaria, and to the end, literally end, of the earth. Now, verse 9 tells us that after he had said this, he was taken up before their very eyes and a cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going. This is a description of Jesus' ascension, which is mentioned also in Luke chapter 24, verses 50 to 51. It's described as a being taken up, described as he was going, described as Jesus being taken from them. Charles Erdman, the great teacher of the Word of God, said Jesus went from temporal to eternal, from <clears throat> seen to unseen. We call it the ascension. And we're, we're taught some important facts about the ascension. They were looking up intently into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why do you stand here looking into the sky? This same Jesus who has been taken from you into heaven will come back in the same way you have seen him go into heaven. His return will be personal. His return will be visible. His return will be in a cloud which, by the way, may be a reference to the Shekinah glory. His return will be bodily in the view of observers. His return will be to the Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14.4 tells us. And one writer described it this way, his return will be during the battle of Armageddon to set up his millennial and eternal kingdom. That's Revelation 19, Zechariah 12, Zechariah 14. Jesus was taken up into heaven with, in the ascension. 
as they stood there, as his disciples stood there, he is lifted into the sky and away from and out of their sight. One writer said that in Acts chapter 1, verses 9 to 11, Luke insists that the Christian mission must be based on the ascended and living Lord who directs his church from heaven and who will return to consummate what he has begun. His return will be visible. His return will be bodily. His return will be personal. It's important for us to understand, not returning in a spiritual way, but returning in an actual bodily, visible way. There are four implications of the ascension. Four implications of the ascension. Number one, it is the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry in bodily form. It's the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry in bodily form. Now, there's two important words in there. One is earthly ministry because Jesus still continues to minister through you and through me. But he's not here bodily doing it. He's doing it through us. He's doing it through us. But the ascension was the conclusion of his earthly and ministry in bodily form. He is continuing to minister from heaven. And he is ministering through you and through me. The second implication of the ascension is this. He was exalted to the right hand of the Father where he today is interceding for you and for me. Let me give you a couple of scripture on that. There are lots that you could look up, but we're just going to hone in on the book of Ephesians. You could look at Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 5. You could look at numerous passages in the book of Hebrews. I'm just going to point out a couple to you. The first one I'd like you to see is Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3. Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 3, where we read this. The Son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being, sustaining all things by His powerful word. After He had provided purification for sins, He sat down at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. Now, compare that with Hebrews chapter 4, starting at verse 14, where we're told what Jesus is doing at the right hand of God in heaven Chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews, verses 14 to 16. Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has gone through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold firmly to the faith we profess. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way just as we are, yet was without sin. Let us then approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. Jesus was exalted to the right hand of the Father where he is doing a ministry of intercession for you and for me. A ministry of intercession for you and for me. 1 John chapter 2 and verse 1 
is another place where we are told what Jesus is doing as he is at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And we read in 1 John chapter 1, excuse me, chapter 2 and verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anybody does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the sins of the whole world. Jesus is advocating for you and for me. Jesus is our lawyer in heaven. Saying to God the Father, yes, she's covered by my blood. Yes, he's covered by my blood. So he sits at the right hand because he has ascended into heaven. He has been exalted to the right hand of the Father where he intercedes for us. He intercedes on our behalf to the Father. He understands what life here is like. He experienced it, although he was without sin. So the ascension is the conclusion of Jesus' earthly ministry in bodily form. The ascension is... Jesus exalted to the right hand of the Father where He intercedes for us. Thirdly, the third implication of the ascension is the continuing work of Jesus on earth is now our responsibility. The continuing work of Jesus on earth is now His disciples' responsibility. If you know Jesus Christ as Savior, your responsibility is to carry on His work in the power of the Holy Spirit. My responsibility is to carry on His work in the power of the Holy Spirit. The fourth implication of the ascension is according to John chapter 16 and verse 7, the coming of the Holy Spirit was contingent on Jesus' departure. He promised the disciples that they, if they would wait, that the Holy Spirit would come upon them in power. But he told us in John chapter 16 and verse 7, and verse 7, unless he goes away, the Holy Spirit won't come. So it was necessary for him to be ascended into heaven. Now, back in Acts chapter 1, he was taken up before their very eyes. A cloud hid him from their sight. They were looking intently up into the sky as he was going when suddenly two men dressed in white stood beside them. Men of Galilee, they said, why are you standing around gazing into the sky? This was no time for mourning. This was no time for mourning his passing into the heavenlies. They had motivating factors to continue to serve Him. Motivating factors to continue to be obedient to the Word of God. There was the promise of the coming kingdom. There was the promise coming of the Holy Spirit. There was the promise of Jesus' return. There was the message of salvation 
which when the Holy Spirit came, they would be able to share with others empowered by the Holy Spirit. Sins are forgiven. Death is defeated. Eternal life is available to everyone who puts their trust in Jesus Christ as their Savior. There would be work for them to do. There would be work for them to do. Well, as we continue in verse 12, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the hill called the Mount of Olives, a Sabbath day walk from the city. Now what that basically means is the, on the Sabbath day you were allowed to walk so many steps. You're only allowed to walk so many steps. It covered approximately 3,000 feet, a little more than a half mile, is all that a Jew could walk on the Sabbath day. That's why it's called a Sabbath day walk. They returned to Jerusalem from the Mount of Olives, which was east of Jerusalem. They returned to Jerusalem in obedience to the Lord. You know, the natural tendency would have been to flee Jerusalem because it was a place of danger for them, and their homes were in Galilee, so the tendency for the disciples would be to flee Jerusalem, to go back to their homes in Galilee. But they had been told to wait. They have been told to wait. God often allows us to be where we don't wish to be. He sometimes lets us be in places where there's danger. That's what he did with these disciples. They might have wanted to flee to Galilee. They might have wanted to flee Jerusalem. It was a dangerous place for them to be. As one writer said, however, there was a divine purpose in having the witnesses begin at Jerusalem. It may have been a place of danger, but it was a place of widest possible influence. So as servants of Christ, we have all to ask, not where we shall be most at ease, but where we shall be most efficient as witnesses for Christ. See, that's the question. The question for every one of us to ask is not will we be most at ease. Where is the most easy place for us to be? Whether we're talking about the place we live, the town we live, the neighborhood we live, whether we're talking about the job that we have, the question is not what is the easiest for us. The question is where does God want us to be? I got orders for Del Rio, Texas. Everybody hates going to Del Rio, Texas. Not everybody. Some of us are now, what's 20, I don't know how many years we've been here. It's home. Del Rio, Texas is home. But you got sent here and you didn't want to be sent here. Could there be a reason God sent you here? Is there something here that he has for you to do? It's not an easy place. 
But as the writers said, we have to ask the question, not where will I be most at ease, but where will I be most efficient as a witness for Christ? And the writer goes on to say, and to remember very often the presence of adversaries makes the door great and effectual. In other words, often the gospel goes forward where there are adversaries in a greater way than it goes forward where people are friendly to it. We always think that we have to be in a friendly situation in order to witness to others around us. And sometimes... God places us in a situation where it is not friendly to the gospel. Well, verse 13, when they arrived, they went upstairs to the room where they were staying. They gathered in... an upstairs room, an upper room. Literally in Greek it says the upper room. We believe it may possibly have been the place of the Last Supper, what we call the Last Supper. The upper room. Possibly it was the house based on Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. A central meeting place in Jerusalem for the early church was the house of Mary the mother of John Mark. It may have been possibly her house. And the reason they met in an upstairs room is because the smaller rooms were in the lower part of the building so they would support the weight of an upper room which was larger. So very likely, this was the place of the Last Supper or possibly the house of Mary, mother of John, Mark. Those present were Peter, John, James, Andrew, Philip, Thomas, Bartholomew, and Matthew, James, son of Alphaeus, and Simon the Zealot, and Judas, son of James. The apostles minus Judas, the traitor. The apostles minus Judas, the traitor. And we're also told they joined together constantly in prayer along with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. Not only did they understand that they were to wait, but they understood that to wait did not mean do nothing. To wait did not mean do nothing. They gathered together they shared with each other, and they prayed with one another. By the way, only three of the 11 apostles mentioned here are mentioned again in the book of Acts. Only three of the apostles mentioned here are mentioned in the book of Acts. Can you guess who they were? Peter? James and John are the three that are mentioned later in the book of Acts. None of the rest of this group are mentioned again in the book of Acts. Well, they gathered together in prayer. Prayer was a feature of the early church. 
both individuals and the church together prayed. Prayer is mentioned 31 times in the book of Acts. 31 times prayer is mentioned in the book of Acts. Acts 2.42 tells us they devoted themselves to prayer. Acts chapter 4, verses 23 to 31 said prayer gave them boldness to witness. Acts 6.4, prayer was a central ministry of the twelve. Acts 12, verses 1 to 11, they prayed together as a church when Peter was in prison. Acts 13, they prayed before sending off Barnabas and Saul on the first missionary journey. Stephen prayed, Peter prayed, John prayed, Cornelius prayed, Paul prayed, and Paul and Silas prayed. Prayer was a feature of the early church. Alexander Solzhenitsyn, in a sermon to America in 1978, said this, We have placed too much hope in politics and social reforms only to find out that we were being deprived of our most precious possession, our spiritual life. Eugene Peterson commenting on this said a significant significant number of people are actually doing something about Solzhenitsyn's concern, that work is prayer. That work is prayer. And he goes on to say prayer is political action. Prayer is social energy. Prayer is public good. For more of our nation's life is shaped by prayer than is formed by legislation, prayer is the source of action. We forget that, don't we? We forget the importance of prayer. Well, they met together. They prayed together. By the way, this is the last mention of Mary in the New Testament. And we should understand that though she was esteemed, as the Savior's mother, she was never worshipped. She was never considered an intermediary between them and Jesus, as she is portrayed today. Jesus' brothers were present at this time. It's interesting to note that according to John chapter 7 and verse 5, they didn't believe in Jesus during His earthly ministry. They didn't come to faith until after His death and burial and resurrection. Mark chapter 3 verse 21 tells us that they thought that Jesus was mentally ill. But later they came to faith. Jesus' half-brother James became the leader of the Jerusalem church. He wrote the book of James. Judas, or Jude as he is called, another half-brother of Jesus, wrote the book of Jude. Apparently the resurrection led to their Conversion. 
Well, this was a time for the disciples of unity and obedience and prayer. The answer to the question, what now is the same, whether you're talking about Jesus being taken up from the disciples, the apostles, or you're talking about the what now of your life and my life, the answer is the same. We wait. We seek out God's word. We seek out the comfort of other believers. And we pray. Let's bow together. Lord, thank you. Thank you for the example of the early church as they obediently waited for the coming of the Spirit. As they shared with each other and encouraged each other. As they prayed with each other. Lord, for the what nows of our lives, may we remember to wait on you. May we remember to believe your word. May we remember to seek the comfort of other believers. May we remember, Lord, the importance of prayer. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.